Let's pray. Father, would you be so kind this morning through the power of your spirit to show us your great love for us and your covenant to us. As we consider the great covenant with Abraham, I pray, God, that you would make clear to us the the inheritance that the children of promise have. And for believers in the room, that you would make clear of just what you have given to them. And as Bill prayed for the unbeliever, that you would put before them a feast that would be appealing to them and more so would you work in their heart so that they would desire these things. This text is heavy and glorious at the same time and so I I pray God that you would work in this time so that we could feel the realities of it in the way that we should. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 17. We continue to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this great book, Genesis 17. In second grade, I ran for class president. We were learning about government structure and as an exercise, we had mock elections for president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary. I remember being so excited. I made posters that said, vote for Donald. They might have said, make second grade great again. I don't know. (laughs) So excited. Uh, We set a date for when we would vote. We even set a date for when we were going to give campaign speech to the class as to why they should vote for me or someone else for the same reason. I don't remember the name of the boy that was running against me, but it was just the two of us running for president, and so I knew I had a pretty good shot. Even the political trail for second grade can be pretty cutthroat sometimes. It's like, hey, I'll, I'll give you my extra fries at lunch if you'll vote for me. Or, who are you planning to vote for? after a few days of that campaigning, you know, making these back alley deals under the slide or behind the swing set, turns out we were learning more about government than we realized. (laughs) After a few days of that sort of thing, I felt pretty confident in my chances. The polls were looking good, as they say. But then came the day for our speech to the class So I told the class in the most second grade like way possible that I would be honest and fair and be nice to everyone. I was always going to do my best. My parents, I remember helping me the night before just polishing my statement. I was running on integrity and honesty and reality. I didn't stand a chance when I realized what my opponent was running on. His speech was full of promises. He said, if you elect me president, I'll make sure we have pizza every day for lunch. The class was like, yeah. He said, if you make me president, I'll make sure to have a limousine drive you to and from school 
I was like, yeah, that sounds good. He said, if you make me president, I'll put a pool on the playground. And they're like, yeah, that sounds amazing. He said, in fact, I'll make sure there's no more homework for the rest of second grade. And then like, woo, we're voting for this guy. And the whole time I'm like, he can't do it. Like they're all just fake promises. He's just trying to get your vote. Don't listen to him. And here I was trying to, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to be honest. And the guy said, I'm going to give you a pool. I didn't stand a chance. The class was ecstatic, of course. And they didn't care that I said, these are just empty promises. They're not true. It sounded so good to them. And I don't think I received one vote. (laughs) Promises were given. None of them were fulfilled. Have you ever had someone promise you something like that? Or make some kind of promise and they don't live up to their word? So promises are wonderful things if you can actually trust the person making the promise. But some people just get promises to earn your vote or to tell you what you want to hear or just to get the conversation to stop and to get you to move on, to stop talking about things. I'll just say whatever you want to say. Say whatever you want me to say. See, promises are wonderful if they're kept and if the person who issues the promise is trustworthy. In our study of Genesis so far, we've seen God give many promises to Abram. And in today's text, we're going to see the climax of that promise that he gave to Abram, first of all, like 25 years prior. Today, we get all the details. Now, normally, what I would do, I'd read the entire text, and then I'd walk through it. But today, I want to read the text in four different sections and focus on four different aspects of God's covenant, God's promise to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So when I picked Genesis to preach through, I knew that it was going to be stretching for me and stretching for all of us at times. And so I just want to let you know that this is a very stretching text, but if you'd be willing to dig into the text... I'm going to quote a lot of scripture. Most of them will be on the screens. If you'll go with me on this journey through scripture, I think by the end, you'll see glories of God's character in ways that maybe you haven't before. Certainly ones to be encouraged by. And as we go through this text, as God's covenant is expanded upon, ask this question, is God like the second grader who gives lots of promises and doesn't keep them, or Is he more faithful and true than anyone you've ever known? Let's look at this text and learn about this God who is unquestionably a covenant promise-keeping God. So I'm going to look at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 17 to start. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you And may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you 
And I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. We'll stop there for now. Four aspects of God's covenant. This section shows us the first. What we learn first of God's covenant is this. God's covenant is graciously abundant. Graciously abundant. I'm convinced that mankind as a whole is prone to take for granted God's kindness and grace. What I mean is this. We tend to think that God must give us forgiveness, that he owes it to us somehow, that if he doesn't extend it to us, then that he would be wrong for not doing so. R.C. Sproul says it like this, quote, we tend to demand his grace and find his justice unfair. That's true. What we fail to remember is God, in fact, doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to give us grace. If each of us woke up in hell tomorrow, God would be perfectly just and we would be undeniably guilty. We have broken his law. We have sinned against him. Perhaps you can think something this morning that has displeased the Lord. And the sentencing that he gives to law-breaking sinners like us is eternal death and hell apart from him for all eternity. See, what we take for granted is God didn't have to engage with sinful man. So when Adam and Eve took that fruit in rebellion, God could have killed them right then and there. He didn't have to find them in the garden and then ask them questions, engage in conversation. He didn't have to give them any more days, but he did. And then all their descendants followed in their footsteps in sinfulness, and God didn't have to deal in grace with them either, but he did. And then as Abram is in Ur of the Chaldeans and he's worshiping these false gods of the planets, God didn't have to engage him, but he did. He didn't have to go to this idol worshiper and say, I'm going to call you out and I'm going to give you this everlasting promise, but he did. See, we would understand God's grace better if we first understood that he didn't have to give it to us at all. But he did. The fact that God engages Abram with a covenant promise here is sheer grace. Now notice in verse one, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now, chapter 16 last week ended with Abram being 86 years old. This is 13 years have passed since they've had Ishmael. And maybe we think, well, maybe Ishmael was the promised son of God. I mean, 13 years and still nothing. How many times must Abram and Sarah have wondered, where is God? What is he doing? Has he forgotten us? Why won't he fulfill his promise? Well, maybe Ishmael is the one that's promised. God comes to him 13 years after the promise. How impatient must he have felt at times? Like, you and I get impatient if when we text someone, we don't see the three little bubbles pop up that they're responding, right? 13 years. I say that God's covenant is graciously abundant 
because he didn't have to engage Abram. I say that it's graciously abundant because of the lavish blessings that comes when he does. Notice in the text just how abundant God's blessings are to Abram. God goes over the top. You can just see them sprinkled throughout the whole first verse eight, the first eight verses. He says, not only am I going to give you a child, you're going to have a multitude of nations come from you. Not only am I going to give you a son in your line, you're going to have a line of kings. Not only am I going to give you what you need, I'm going to give you more than you need. He says, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. Not only will I give you a small lot for your tent to live on, Abram, I'm going to give you the entire land of Canaan. Not only will I give you myself, I'll give myself to your children. And by the way, all of this is everlasting. All of it's yours. You see how abundant God's grace is to him? God could have said to Abram, Abram, I'm going to give you a small little five-acre lot to live with with your family, with your one child, to live in peace, to go in your days and die in happiness. I mean, that would have been nice. No, God gives an abundance of blessing. Kings will come for you. You get the entire land. You're going to be exceedingly fruitful. This is going to be an everlasting promise. Collier's grandfather was a great gift opener. Maybe you have one of those in your family. Every Christmas, every birthday, he would act so surprised that anyone would get him any gift. And of course, everyone got him a gift. And with each new present put in front of him, he would exclaim something like, oh boy, another one? No way. How much more would Abram have thought, gracious, this is too much. I'm glad to have a son, but a king, kings from sons and a whole land and everlasting promise, just overflowing blessings. Good gracious, this is too much. God's covenant is graciously abundant. Have you ever heard the children's song, Father Abraham? Right, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. You've heard that. Is that song true? Like theologically accurate? That I am one of them, and so are you, a son of Abraham? Let's think about this. Just who is included in this blessing given to Abraham? When he says, I'm going to promise this to your offspring. I'm going to be a God to your offspring, to your children after you. What offspring is this promise being given to? Is it just Abraham's flesh and blood? Is it automatically his flesh and blood only? Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and 8. And here Paul is writing about Israelites who have not believed He says, it is not though as God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, just because someone shares flesh and blood with Abraham doesn't mean that they're true children of Abraham. Paul says not all Israel is true Israel. Not all ethnic Israel is part of God's chosen heavenly Israel. Well, then who are Abraham's son? Who, who is included in this blessing? Galatians 3, 7 says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 9 says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith in who? Galatians 3, 16 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So yes, seeing Father Abraham had many sons and you and I are one of them, just know that it's for those who are of faith those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's offspring. If you are in Christ, the chosen seed of Abraham, church family, realize the nature of this promise given in Genesis 17. The abundant promises given to Abraham and to his offspring are given to you, the children of faith. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Dear Christians, the promises that were given to Abraham's offspring in Genesis 17 are promises you can bank on in Jesus Christ. Just think about the abundant graciousness as God entered into a relationship with Abraham through Jesus Christ, you can be called son or daughter of God. As God became personal to Abraham through Jesus Christ, we can cry out to God as Father. As God promised to multiply him greatly through Jesus Christ, you are a part of his universal family. As God promised that Abraham would have kings come in his line through Jesus Christ, we see places like Revelation 19 where it's written on Jesus' thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. This graciously abundant covenant given to Abraham extends to all people of God in every generation, in every ethnicity, in every nation, in every home where Jesus is recognized as Lord of all. And this is why it's so important for the church to remember our mission has always been a globally diverse mission filled with ethnicities from all over and not just centering upon one nation. So yes, God started with ethnic Israel, but it was always the promise that the nations would be blessed through her. This is why even on a day like today, Independence Day, that more of an emphasis is not given specifically to America in our services. 
It's not because we're not patriotic. It's not because we don't love our country. We do, in fact, very much so. In fact, I would encourage you as Americans to celebrate the freedoms and the blessings that that we've been praying about in our service, to, to love this great country. As a citizen of this nation, I would encourage you to give thanks to God and eat a hot dog today and shoot fireworks and have a pool party. Enjoy the common graces of God given to us in this wonderful nation. However, the church's mission, specific, the church's mission has always been more globally minded. So one author describes our gatherings on earth as a church as being like an embassy of heaven. So that yes, while we are on earth, we are citizens of this country, but when we come together as a church, our gatherings should demonstrate that we're actually citizens of a far superior land a heavenly land where Jesus reigns as king and the blessings of that home are far better than this one and where our responses in worship reflect those grand eternal realities. And of course, all of these eternal realities are true because God's covenant is graciously abundant. For those who are in Christ, these are your promises. Look at the next section. Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We see God's covenant is first graciously abundant. Second, we see God's covenant is radically signified. God's covenant is radically signified. Now I say radically signified because I'd say circumcision is a pretty radical way of showing a reality. God tells Abraham to circumcise all the men and boys as a way to distinguish them from the other people of the earth. That those who are circumcised are to be known as the people under God's covenant with Abraham. Now why circumcision? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why not a scar on the forehead or a marking on the hand or a certain haircut or facial hair? Why does it have to be such a radical and frankly painful sign? I think there are several good explanations. I read a couple of these in commentaries this week. One possibility that that I saw was Circumcision because covenants are always formalized through blood. So remember in chapter 15, you have God creating this covenant with Abraham and what does he do with the animals? He cuts them in half. It's a very bloody formalized ceremony. Circumcision would certainly fit that pattern. 
Another commentator remarked that through circumcision, Abraham would be exercising an extraordinary amount of faith, especially since he didn't have the promised son yet, and just one mistake could prevent him from having any sons. One pastor highlighted it like this, imagine the faith it took for Abraham to circumcise himself at 99 years old. Incredible faith. I mean, I think the blood element of circumcision, the vulnerable faith element are good explanations. I would add this possibility. In God's big plan, the radical circumcision of the flesh was always intended to point to a more radical circumcision of the heart. I mean, by itself, circumcision of the flesh may seem strange as a sign, but not if it's intended to point to a future circumcision, a more radical circumcision of the heart. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Here Moses writes about what God will eventually do for his people. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, that you may live. It was God's plan, even from the circumcision of the flesh with Abraham, that a circumcision of the heart would come. And which one is more radical? The circumcision of the flesh deals in the area of reproduction. Circumcision of the heart deals in the area of living your very life. And here's where you have to track with me. In God's grand design, there's always been this progression in his covenant plan. So in the Abrahamic covenant, he commanded circumcision of the flesh. In Deuteronomy 30, what I just read, he mentions that there's going to come a time where there's going to be a circumcision of the heart. And then in Jeremiah 31 and other places, he speaks of a new covenant that's going to come. So Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Likewise, in Ezekiel 36, he pictures this heart circumcision like this. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Circumcision of the flesh, there's going to be a circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 has this picture of removing the old, placing the new. When is this going to happen? Jesus comes the night before he's killed. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. Listen what he says in Luke 22, 20. He takes the cup and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the blood of Jesus spilled on the cross initiated, inaugurated the new covenant era where the circumcision of the flesh was commanded but now transitions to the circumcision of the heart. It's a progression here. 
circumcision of the flesh, there's going to be a circumcision of the heart. When does it take place? Through the formalized blood ceremony of the shedding of God's son. What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It means that God takes out the dead heart of sin. He takes out the dead heart of rebellion against him. He gives a new heart. He makes the person new from the inside out. He gives you new loves and new desires for him instead of running in rebellion against him. This is why Jesus speaks in John 3 of being born again. The church desperately needs to come back to the theology of the new birth. A new birth being you become new. Jesus makes you new. He gives you a new heart. You think circumcision of a male body part is radical? It doesn't compare to the circumcision of the heart that makes you new, that makes you alive, that wakes you up to the glory of God. That has to happen to be saved. Now this was a hard transition for the people of God. You can imagine for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they practiced the sign of circumcision of the flesh. And then Jesus comes, the new covenant is inaugurated. The more radical circumcision of the heart is now in play. And so what happened? You had new people coming to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, being born into the family of God. And yet you had some former Jews, some older Jews who would say, yeah, but if you really want to be a part of the family of God, you need to get circumcised as well. He's just kind of a, you need to have place, faith, plus an adherence to the old law. And over and over, the whole New Testament is like point blank refuting such a thought that no, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not adherence to the old law. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he makes the point abundantly clear. He says, in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, meaning the circumcision took place and it wasn't like a, a, a human literal circumcision. It was a circumcision not made with hands, meaning a literal, a heart circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. He's very clear. Circumcision in the human way, the requirement for such is gone. Why? Because the circumcision of Christ has come, the circumcision of the heart. God's covenant is radically signified. Now, here's a key question. If circumcision was the sign for the covenant with Abraham, what is the sign for the new covenant under Christ, the circumcised heart? Old covenant with Abraham, circumcision. New covenant, circumcised heart, what's the sign? The sign is baptism. Now here's where I'm really close to my Presbyterian family and friends, which I love and respect dearly. See, many ask this question. It's a key question. If you kind of wonder why some baptize infants, some don't. Key question here. 
If circumcision was the sign under Abraham's covenant, and now that sign has gone to a new covenant, and the new sign is baptism, if, if Abraham circumcised his babies under the old sign, and now the sign has become baptism, why don't we baptize our babies? You see the connection? Under the old sign, he baptized his children. I mean, he, he circumcised his children. The sign has changed to baptism, so why don't we baptize our children? That's a really good question. Here's where I would have agreement. The sign of circumcision has transitioned to a sign of baptism. But here's a critical difference. Circumcision was given to all ethnic Israel. So if you were born a Jew, a Jewish boy, you were getting circumcised. But under the new covenant, the sign of baptism is reserved specifically given to those of faith in particular. So Colossians 2 is a key text of many I just referenced. Read it again. In him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. You see the connection? Circumcised, being buried in baptism. There's this close connection. Now the next phrase is key. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Circumcision has transitioned to baptism for those of faith. Peter preaches in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, one coming before the other. Other places it says, those who received his word were baptized. And listen, this is a debated point throughout church history. Believers can dwell together in fellowship with that disagreement. But here's the point I would wanna make for us all, okay? God has always radically signified his covenant people. So the question I would want to put before each of you, have you gone public with the sign of the covenant? Have you followed Jesus in obedience to signify that you belong to the covenant people of God? That you're a son or a daughter of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ? This is where if... if if you've trusted in Jesus and you've, you've never been baptized, I want to invite you to, to be baptized, to identify with the people of God. It's radical in and of itself. God's covenant is radically signified. The first two that we just did, graciously abundant, radically signified, those were the long ones. These next two will be shorter. So number three, look at the third scene, verse 15 of Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be, be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, 
whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abram, Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was, 30, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Here's the third aspect we see of God's covenant. It's graciously abundant. It's radically signified. Third, God's covenant is unconditionally particular. Unconditionally particular. Once again, God tells Abraham of the son he's going to give to him through Sarah. At this point, Abram wonders, how in the world is this going to happen? He says, you know what? Why don't you just use Ishmael, God? He's 13, strong, healthy young man. Just let him use, just use Ishmael. I mean, Sarah is 90, I'm 100. God says, no. I have plans for Ishmael, but he's not the chosen seed. Verse 19. No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. In other words, God is clear. Abraham, I'm not using Hagar, I'm using Sarah. I'm not using Ishmael, I'm using Isaac. Why? Was there something special about Sarah? No, she wasn't even worshiping God when God called her. Was there something special about Isaac? He wasn't even born yet. So why Sarah and Isaac and not Hagar and Ishmael? Because God's covenant is unconditionally particular. There's no condition within Sarah or Isaac that leads to God's particular selection of them. He chooses them out of mercy to carry forward his ordained plan. Just as Romans 9:11 says, it's done in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Oh, church family, know this electing God of Scripture. Electing Abram out of Ur, particularly planning for Isaac to be the child of promise over Ishmael, purposely using Jacob over Esau, sovereignly selecting Joseph over his brothers, unconditionally electing Israel over the nations, and in the New Testament calling his bride the elect. What is there? in this about God's covenant that's hopeful. Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. There's hope for the world because he's a God who plans and fulfills his purposes and redeems particularly for his glory. Jesus references the end of time in Matthew 24, 31, and he says that at that time, God, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This matters for the church's mission, that God sends his church to the world with a message on our lip. We preach Christ and him crucified. We tell of his forgiveness to all. We extend his grace to all. We call all to repent and believe. We share of his cleansing blood, his triumphant resurrection. We plead with all sinners to see the glory of Christ. We hold it out and we said, will you believe? 
And as we go, we can go with unwavering confidence, just like Paul did in Acts 18, who had this promise, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. Because God's covenant is unconditionally particular, we can go with unashamed confidence. God has a people to call to himself. He will accomplish his plan. He will fill out his covenant people. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they will come. Because God's covenant is unconditionally particular, our mission is unshakably powerful. We have one last section and it's the shortest one. Genesis 18, we're spilling over into the next chapter that we'll focus mainly on next week. Look at Genesis 18, verse one. And the Lord appeared to him, Abram, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into his tent to Sarah and said, quick, three, three seahs of fine flour needed and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took the curds and the milk and the calf that he had prepared and set them before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent, of the, at the tent door behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have a pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. He said, no but you did laugh. The last aspect we learn of God's covenant here is graciously abundant, it's radically signified, it's unconditionally particular, and fourth, God's covenant is indomitably certain. Indomitably certain. In other words, God's plan and covenant will come to pass because it's an unstoppable surety. Now, I wanna focus on the very last part of the section today. We'll talk about the three heavenly figures next week. Sarah's in her tent, she hears this promise from God and she literally LOLs, right? She laughs out loud. God says, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And here's the key phrase, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. It's a rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. At the appointed time, I will return and she will have a son. Do you hear the indomitable certainty of this promise? That nothing will stand in the way. Nothing will be too hard. Nothing will be impossible. Notice the two bookends of this text. 
God introduces himself to Abram at the beginning. I am God Almighty. And at the end, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. There's encouragement for us here, brothers and sisters, in knowing that God's plan and his covenant will go forward without a doubt. The rest of scripture shows the fulfillment leading up until now. And we're in the final days of redemptive history where we still have just a few promises left to see. And if history proves anything, it's this, God's plans go forward even through great hostility. The church continues to grow even though hell's flames burn hot against her. Listen, no government will ultimately shut down God's purposes. Pastors may be arrested and silenced as they are, but God's truth will continue to prevail. Leaders and laws may rise and fall, but God's law of Christ will reign supreme. Society all around us will become more and more secular, but God's church will become more and more pure. Persecution, trials, even death itself may come to Christians, even in our land. But we know that it won't stop God's promises either. Why? Because the king of kings walked through persecution and trials and even death and he lives and reigns supreme. Church, we can be encouraged that God's covenant will continue to push forward because it's indomitably certain. So I could just close with these encouragements. I pray that this text has allowed you to see a, a much fuller, a much richer understanding of God's promise to you if you're in Christ, that you are abundantly blessed in Christ, the kingdom is yours, that you're radically set apart for the whole world to see, that you're loved by God with an unconditional, particular covenant love, and you're secure because God's work is indomitably certain. Rest there today. Let's pray. Oh God, your ways are higher than our ways. But we're thankful that you give us revelations such as Genesis 17 where we get glimpses into your glory, into your covenant promises to us. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve as a church, that we would know of the power and the plan behind the mission that you have given to us. And we would know that your way is certain. Your purposes are secure. That even the hostilities and the threats and the persecutions that may come are part of an overarching grand purpose of yours. God, thank you for your covenant love Oh God, I pray that you would help us as believers at Abner Creek to know of your covenant love. I pray for others who are in this room who they do not know it. I pray that as they've considered these things, that your spirit would be active, calling themselves to you. Work in this time, I pray in Christ's name, amen.